And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings to the distri- and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of God. Right, it's good to see you today. Let's, uh, let's open with a word of prayer, just acknowledging that we definitely need God's power today. Uh, Father, I'm reminded of the passage in 2 Corinthians 4, that we have this treasure that we have in jars of clay to show that the surpassing greatness is from you and not from us. And so I'm reminded today of my own frailty and my own weaknesses and the fact that you are great. And I know that I can speak for everyone in saying that we are all jars of clay And you are the one that we are meant to point to. And so, Father, we pray that despite our weaknesses and despite our inadequacies, despite our sinfulness, that we would be able to magnify and glorify you today. God, we're praying that as we go through the book of Acts, that as we continue our journey through this book and looking at the early church, that we would once again be convicted and encouraged and challenged. God, help us to have the humility to recognize that we need your help. And that the reason we gather together on a day like today is because more than anything, we're reminded of the fact that we need to worship you. That apart from you, we have nothing of any value. So God, help us today to remember that we are the jars of clay and that you are the great treasure. And help us to appropriately magnify you in light of that fact. We're asking for your help. We're praying that you would move. We're praying that your spirit would work. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what comes to your mind when you hear the word fellowship? Depending upon your life circumstances or your experiences, I'm guessing that maybe a variety of different things come to your mind. For some of you, when you hear the word fellowship, what comes to mind is medical training or some other postgraduate study or research. For others of you, when you hear the word fellowship, you immediately think of Lord of the Rings, specifically the first of the trilogy, the fellowship of the ring. Or for others of you, especially because of our context today, when you hear the word fellowship, something Christian comes to your mind. That is, after all, a word that we like to throw around in Christian circles, fellowship. At the church that I grew up, uh, that I grew up in, there was a specific area of the building that was known as the Fellowship Hall. I think this is something that transcends geographic areas, that transcends denominations, and so there's a good chance that if you've been to enough churches at some point in your life, you've been to a church that has the Fellowship Hall. At the church I grew up in, the fellowship hall was the place that we would go to after the service to eat a little food and to have a few conversations. And in fact, that experience and the fact they called it the fellowship hall in many ways shaped the way I thought about fellowship growing up. When I thought about fellowship, what I thought of was jello salad and cookies and lemonade and small talk because that's always what happened in the fellowship hall. We would gather together, we would have some sort of light refreshment, maybe it would be punch if we were lucky or cookies or, or something else and then we would just sit around and we would talk about things like the weather and sports, schools, our jobs, our families. I can honestly say that even though this fellowship time was taking place at the church, I never remember once in that fellowship time actually talking about Jesus. We would talk about a lot of other things and we would eat food, but there was no real talk of Jesus. Fellowship, at least at that church, or at least for me in that growing up time, seemed to mean that we would share food together and maybe talk a little bit. 
But is this what Christian fellowship is supposed to look like? Now again, I recognize that fellowship can mean a lot of different things to different people, but I'm asking this specific question. Is Christian fellowship supposed to look like this? Is Christian fellowship merely spending time together and talking about a variety of different topics? I think for a lot of us, when we use the word fellowship, that is exactly what we have in mind. When we say we're gathering together for fellowship, what we really mean is that we're going to share some meal or some activity and probably some small talk. But again, my question is, is this what Christian fellowship is supposed to look like? I think the answer to the question is both yes and no. Yes, and the fact that I think Christian fellowship can include those things. It can include sharing a meal and even exchanging small talk. But no, in the sense that there is something more to our Christian fellowship. That there is something that is to be different in our Christian fellowship. The fact is, even non-believers, even those who don't believe in the gospel, can gather together and can share a meal and can exchange small talk. There's nothing wrong with that. But as Christians, there ought to be something qualitatively different and qualitatively better about our fellowship. There should be something beautiful. And that's something beautiful I think we see here described in Acts chapter 2. I think what we see in this passage is that Christian fellowship is more than just jello salad and cookies. Now, Christian fellowship is something that moves far beyond that. That's what we see pictured in the early church in Acts chapter 2. So let's read again, Acts 2, starting in verse 42. And if you would, would you mind standing out of reverence for the reading of God's word? Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. Let me remind you, this is the word of God. Verse 42 says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You may be seated. Now, before we go any further, I think it's helpful for us to point out something about the nature of the book of Acts. The book of Acts, in many ways, is a recording of the history of the early church. And in that way, much of what we read here is descriptive rather than prescriptive. What I mean by that is this, that Luke, who's the author of Acts, what he's doing is describing for us what the early church looked like. He's not necessarily prescribing or commanding us, this is exactly what we should look like. Rather, he's just giving us a history of the church. And so we need to be careful here as we go through the book of Acts in the weeks to come that we don't take every passage that we see and say, if we don't look exactly like this, we are in sin. That's not what's going on in the book of Acts. It's a description of what was happening in the early church. And so we want to be careful here because there's a real tendency that we could look at a passage like Acts 2 and say, well, if we don't look exactly like this, we are way off base. There's a danger in that. We want to avoid that. But at the same time, we want to say, There are some principles here. There are some things we learn that absolutely carry over into the modern day church. We have to understand that the church at this point is in a much different period of time. They're in a much different cultural situation. Even from the history of the world, that's true, but also from the history of the church. There are certain things that will happen with the early church that we shouldn't necessarily expect would look exactly the same in our church today. But again, there are principles here. And it's those principles that I want to focus in on as we read the book of Acts. 
We want to look at these ideas, these principles that characterize the fellowship of the early church. Now again, before we do that, I think it's also helpful for us to define what do we mean by fellowship. As I said in the introduction, there are many different meanings to the word fellowship, but what do we mean here? In Acts chapter 2, in verse 42, when the word fellowship is used, it's the Greek word koinonia. And it simply means this. It means literally sharing in common. So to have fellowship with other Christians means that we are sharing in common with them. And what I think we'll see here in Acts 2 is that there are many different things that the early church shared in common. In fact, those are the principles I want us to work from today. These things that they shared in common. All right, so I'm going to point out several. The first is this, that they shared priorities. The early church shared priorities. Verse 42, again says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now notice the language of verse 42. They devoted themselves to these things. That's the language of prioritizing. They prioritized these four things. They had a common set of shared priorities. One of them was the apostles' teaching. So there's four things we see here in verse 42 that they were committed to. One of them is the apostles' teaching. Now, to be clear, when we talk about the apostles' teaching, what we mean is this, that the apostles were proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the one who rescues from sin. And we know this is the case. We know this is what the apostles were teaching because this is what Luke tells us. In Acts chapter 5, verse 42, he says this about the apostles. He says, Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. This was the content of the apostles' teaching, that Jesus is the one who rescues from sin. And this is the message that the early church was devoted to. Now, by the way, we also know that the apostles were teaching this because we have much of the apostles' teaching in the form of the New Testament. And we know that the overarching message of all of the New Testament is that Jesus is the Christ. That he is the one who will rescue people from their sin. And so we have access to the apostles' teaching too. The early church was devoted to this teaching, and that should be the case for the church today. Given that we have the apostles' teaching in the form of the Word of God, and understand this, when the apostles taught, they were working from the framework of the Old Testament. And they're explaining how Christ was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. In Luke 24, when Jesus is talking, he points out how he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures. And so when we're talking about the apostles' teaching, we're talking about the entire Word of God. They were teaching from the Old Testament, and we have their teaching in the form of the New Testament. And so when we talk now about the apostles' teaching, what we mean is this book. This is what we should be committed to. And here's why. Because the Word of God has always and will always be central to the life of the church. In fact, the Word has always brought life. Going back to Genesis 1, it was the spoken Word of God that brought life in general. In Ezekiel 37, it's the Word of God that brings life to the dry bones. In John 1, it's the Word, capital W, who becomes flesh and gives us life. In, in Acts chapter, or excuse me, in Luke chapter four, when Jesus begins his public ministry, how does he begin his public ministry? He does so by opening up the Word of God and turning to Isaiah. He unravels the scroll of Isaiah and he reads from that book. In Acts chapter two, the Pentecost, the passage right before this, when three thousand are saved, how is it that they are saved? Well, they're saved through the work of the Holy Spirit, but they're saved because Peter is preaching the Word from the book of Joel and the book of Psalms. When Paul gives advice to Timothy, the young preacher, what does he tell him? He says, preach the word. 
Understand this. The Word of God has always been and will always be central to the church because it's the Word of God that always gives life. And because the reason why that is the case is because the Word testifies about Jesus. The Apostles' teaching was meant to point out that Jesus is the Christ, and that is still true today. Every page of this book is whispering one name, Jesus. Jesus is the one who rescues people from their sins. And so we too, much like the early church, must have the same prioritization of the Word of God. The priorities are still the same. Now, uh, there's something I want to point out here about the context that I think is important. And that's this. The passage right prior to Acts 2.42 is the Pentecost, which I just alluded to a second ago. That's the event where the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church. This is the event that was prophesied in the Old Testament that the Spirit would come, He would fill the people, and this is what would change the church, that the Spirit would dwell with the people of God. Now what's interesting to note here is the very next verse after this event is Acts 2.42, and the very first thing we're told is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now here's why that is relevant. John Stott, I think, points out the relevance well. He says this, The very first evidence Luke mentions of the Spirit's Spirit's presence in the church is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Let me say that again. The very first evidence of the Spirit's working in the church is that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. I think that's important because sometimes... In the church, some people like to make a little distinction. They, they point to some and say, well, these are people who are led by the Spirit, and these are people who are reliant on the Word, as if there's a distinction between the two. And the implication of that is that some people are saying, well, if you're, if you're walking by the Spirit, you won't be confined by Scripture. It's as if you're either a Spirit person or a Scripture person. Nothing can be further from the truth. The person who's being led by the Spirit is the person who's devoted to the Word of God. That's what we see here in Acts 2. The first evidence that the Spirit is at work is they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. And so we should not and we cannot and we must not make a distinction saying, oh, these are people led by the Spirit, these are people led by Scripture. No. If you are a Christian, you are both a Spirit person and a Scripture person. To be led by the Spirit is to devote yourself to the Word of God. And so I think we need to point that out because sometimes there's this false dichotomy that's, that's kind of presented in the church. Either you walk by the Spirit or you really devote yourself to Scripture. It is both. It's both. And oftentimes we see divisions in churches because of this where some churches heavily, influence, heavily emphasize the Spirit, others heavily emphasize Scripture. But what we need to say is that a church that's walking in accordance with what God wants will do both. We will walk by the Spirit, but we will do so by emphasizing the Scripture. So the early church was devoted to the Scripture. And make no mistake about it, if we are going to have any sort of biblical fellowship, if we are going to have any sort of biblical community, we too will be devoted to the Apostles' teaching. We will be devoted to the Word of God. Listen, if there's any church out there that says, oh, we have great fellowship and community, but we're not devoted to the Word of God, they don't have true biblical community and fellowship. They may have some community and fellowship, but even street gangs have community and fellowship. The type of fellowship that we're talking about here is only possible when we have a common commitment and devotion to the Word of God. The supernatural community that Acts 2 is speaking of is a community that rallies around what the Word of God teaches. That's all there is to it. In fact, that explains why every Sunday when we gather together, we must preach the Word of God. 
The Word of God must be central because the Word of God has always been central to the church. Always. Explains why when we get together for discipleship groups or care groups, the Word of God should have some role to play. Explains why if you want to have fellowship and community in your own life, you must be personally devoted to the Scriptures as well. If you claim to want fellowship and community, and and I know many of you say that you want that, you want fellowship and community. If you say you want that, which is a good thing, by the way, if you say you want that and then you don't prioritize coming together to hear the word taught, I don't think you understand how community works. In the same way, if you say you want community and fellowship and you're not personally devoted to the word of God, I'm not sure that you understand how community and fellowship is formed. It rallies around a common prioritizing of the word of God. Because the Word teaches us about Jesus. And so if we are going to be a church that is committed to fellowship, it will mean that we are committed to the Lord's teaching, that we are committed to the Word of God. So this is the first thing that we see the church prioritized. They have this common shared priority in the apostles' teaching. They also prioritized, though, too, fellowship. They devoted themselves to fellowship, we're told in verse 42. Now maybe it seems self-evident to say this, That if you want fellowship, you should be devoted to fellowship. But it's probably worth saying anyway. right? We, If we want fellowship, we must be committed to it. If you want to get in shape, you must be committed to getting in shape. right? If you actually want to be able to run a few miles, you have to run a few miles sometimes. In the same way, if you want fellowship, you must commit yourself to fellowship. Listen, if you say that you want fellowship and community, but then you don't prioritize it, I don't know that you really want fellowship and community. But sadly, I'll say this. At every church that I've been at over the years, this happens regularly. Where people will come to me and they'll say, I really want to have genuine fellowship and community. But then when I press further, that person is not doing anything to prioritize fellowship and community. Listen, if you want biblical fellowship, if you want the type of thing that's described here in Acts 2, you must be committed to it. And so maybe it seems like it's obvious to say, if you want fellowship, be devoted to fellowship. But I think we need to say it anyway. Listen, if you want what we're describing here today, and I hope you do, because there's something beautiful about Acts 2. If you look at this and say, yeah, this is the type of community I want to be a part of, then you must be committed to it. You must be willing to say, I'm going to do what it takes to pursue this. So we see that they were committed not only to the Lord's teaching, but also Also, they were committed to fellowship itself. They were also committed to the breaking of bread. Verse 42 again says that they devoted themselves to this, the breaking of bread. Now, there's some question here. Does this mean the Lord's Supper? Or does this just mean eating meals together? I think the answer is yes. It's both. I think it's both, actually. I think, in part, based on verse 46, we would say that it does include just sharing meals together in homes. But I also think it includes the Lord's Supper. I think it's both. Listen, the fact is there's something about sharing a meal together that builds community, isn't there? Think of it this way. If you have a neighbor that you see every now and then when you're walking the dog or you're out raking the leaves, you may get to know them somewhat. But if you invite them to your house and you share a meal, your relationship's going to go to a whole different level. Why? Because at some point you're going to move beyond the weather and you're going to move beyond sports. You're going to move beyond just these small talk issues and you're going to actually start talking about life. There's something about sharing a meal together that bonds people. It takes the relationship to the next level. And that's true in the church as well. Listen, if there's some person in here that you feel like, you know, I just don't know this person very well. Here's a really simple thing you can do. Invite them over to your house and break bread with them. 
Now, I'm not saying that's going to make you automatically best friends. I'm not saying that that's going to resolve all potential conflicts that you might have. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying there's something about breaking bread together that draws us together. There's something about breaking bread that builds community. And that's true not just in the sense of general meals, but also the Lord's Supper. And there's something about sharing the Lord's Supper that should bring us together. Now listen, here in a few minutes we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And I know there's a real danger here that some will take this and it'll just be a religious exercise. And and you'll just go through the motions like you do every other week when we take the Lord's Supper. But the Lord's Supper is meant to be far more powerful than that. It's meant to be something that's symbolic. Symbolic, first of all, of course, that Jesus' blood was shed and his body was broken for us. But also symbolic of the fact that we're in this together. Listen, there's a reason why when I get the bread and the cup, I don't go walk to the hallway and go to the closet and take it by myself. right? Because we are meant to take the Lord's Supper together. That when you see me eating the bread, or when you see me drinking from the cup, you are reminded that I believe Jesus is the Christ. And you are reminded that we are in this together. There should be something powerful as we look around on Sundays when we take the Lord's Supper to realize that we are proclaiming that not just I believe this, but we believe this. That we believe that this message is true. That we believe that Christ's body was broken for us. That his blood was shed. And so when we take the Lord's Supper, that's what we're proclaiming. By the way, that's why we encourage only Christians to take it. Because we are making a proclamation to the people around us. We believe this message is true. That Jesus died on our cross for our sins and rose three days later. Listen, taking the Lord's Supper is not meant to be just a rote religious exercise. It's not meant to be something that merely fills our bellies. If that was the case, we need far bigger cups. Right? It's not the purpose of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is meant to remind us that Jesus is the Christ. And it's meant to be a visual reminder to us that we are in this together. And so later today, when we take the Lord's Supper, I would encourage you, yes, meditate on what Jesus did, but also look around and realize that the people who are taking the Lord's Supper with you are proclaiming that they believe Jesus is the Christ. And this builds community. Because we're reminding each other, I'm going to die for this message. I would be willing to do whatever it takes to follow Jesus because he is my Lord. Or at least that's what we should be proclaiming. We are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, we're told in 1 Corinthians. And so when you take the Lord's Supper today, let it be a reminder to you of the fellowship you have in Christ. We should be committed to this fellowship. We should be committed to the breaking of bread whether it be the breaking of bread in our homes or the Lord's Supper, just like the early church was. So they prioritized these things. They prioritized the apostles' teaching. They prioritized the breaking of bread. They prioritized fellowship. And we also see this in verse 42. They prioritized prayer. Now verse 42 says that they devoted themselves to the prayers, which indicates that perhaps there were some set prayers they were devoted to. But the obvious point is, and if you read the book of Acts, it's obvious the early church was committed to prayer in general. In fact, if you see many of the great acts that happen in the book of Acts, many of the amazing miracles that happen, they're almost always preceded by prayer. The early church was committed to prayer. And there's something about prayer that draws us together on a horizontal relationship area. It's not just that we are developing our relationship with God. That's important, obviously. But it's that we are developing our relationships with each other. When I look back on my life and I think about the friends that I've had that have been my closest friends, almost always, without exception, I can say that these are people that I prayed the most with. 
That's not a coincidence. That is a correlation. The people that you pray with oftentimes are the people that you develop friendships with. And so again, here's a really simple thing you can do. If you desire community, if you desire fellowship, if you desire that you would grow closer with other people in this church, and by the way, I hope you have that desire. Oh, I hope you do. Then a simple thing you can do is just pray with them. Pray regularly. Pray often. Devote yourself to prayer. Listen, this again, we're not saying that we have to look exactly like the church in Acts, but there are some principles here that I think are worth taking in. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to breaking bread, and they were devoted to prayer. They shared these priorities. That's one of the reasons why, as you read this passage, you notice that there is a qualitative difference in their relationships. They shared priorities. Now, The second thing I would say is this. Not only did they share priorities, they also shared time. They shared time together. A couple of weeks ago in our uh, annual parent and teacher meeting for Sunday school, I asked this question. I said, how do you spell discipleship? I wasn't asking that because I was really interested in having a spelling bee, right? I I was trying to communicate a point. And I said, the answer to that is, you spell discipleship, and by the way, this is not my own. This is what I've heard elsewhere, but how do you spell discipleship? You spell it T I M E, time. Of course, there are things we want to pass on in discipleship, but if you want to disciple someone, if you want to grow in your relationship with them, if you want to teach them how to follow Christ, you must spend time together. That's all there is to it. If you want to disciple your kids, and by the way, that's the task you've been given as a parent, how do you do it? You spend time with them. Now, do you need to be intentional in imparting spiritual things? Sure, absolutely. But you must spend time. Now, over the years, I've heard plenty of parents say, well, I don't spend a lot of time with my kids, but the time I spend with them is quality time. Well, in my experience, that's not how it works. Right? Quantity of time always leads to quality of time. You can't just pop in and think this will be a time of quality. You must spend time together. And the same principle is true in the church. Listen, if we are wanting genuine fellowship and community, if we want to have the type of fellowship that we see described here in Acts 2, then we must spend time together. It's just all there is to it. We must spend time together. And listen, it's obvious the early church was doing this. Look at verse 44. Look at verse 44. We see this. And all who believed were together. They were together. And they had all things in common. Verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They were together. So when I was in high school, I had quite a few different friends, and it wasn't necessarily because I was super popular or because I was really gifted socially. It was because of the fact that I played sports, and I spent time with these guys day after day after day. I played four sports in high school, football, basketball, baseball, track. It started in August. It ended in July. And so for 12 months a year, I was spending time with these guys day after day after day, hour after hour after hour. And I developed friendships with these guys over time, not because we necessarily had a ton in common, other than the fact that we were just playing sports, but because we just spent time together. Listen, that's how friendships work. It's the people that you spend time with. If you think about your kids, their best friends are probably the people they spend the most time with. And if you think about yourself, that's probably true too. The people that you spend the most time with are the people that you grow the closest to. And so I'm, I'm just asking the question, are you prioritizing the spending of time with fellow Christians? 
Is this something that is a priority in your life? Is this something that you are devoting yourself to? Are you saying, it is necessary that I spend time with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Now again, we want to be careful here. We don't want to say, oh, they did it this way in Acts 2. We have to do it exactly the same way. We're not necessarily saying that we have to go to the temple or the church building every day to hear teaching. We're not necessarily saying that. But what we are pointing out is this. I think it's fair to say that there seems to be something qualitatively different about the relationships described in Acts 2 as opposed to most of the modern day church relationships. And it's evidenced by the way they're caring for each other, which we'll talk about in just a second. But there does, some, there does seem to be something different about the relationships. And I don't think it's an accident that they spent time together. Listen, they spent time together. They were there for each other. They were together, verse 44 says. Verse 46 says, they were day-to-day together. Listen, if we're wanting to have the type of fellowship described here, and again, I hope we are, then it requires that you spend time together. That we prioritize this. And not just in theory, but in actual, real life. The early church shared priorities and they shared time. And so I think it's worth asking, how can I prioritize the spending of time with the people of God? Think about that for your kids' sake. How can your kids be around those who are following Christ? For the vast majority of your children, most of their time is spent at school with people who do not know Christ. And so if we're saying that time builds relationships, it's something that we need to consider not only as adults, but also as parents. We need to be thinking through, how can we prioritize the spending of time with God's people? So the early church was sharing priorities, they were sharing time, and they were sharing life together. Verses 44 and 45. Verse 44 says this, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now this passage makes some uncomfortable. Because it seems like maybe the the Bible is advocating some sort of early communism. Like that they're just selling all they have and, and distributing it evenly. But unless you have that concern, let me just say, I don't think that's what the Bible is teaching here. In fact, as Acts 4 and Acts 5 make clear, this selling of property was something that was entirely voluntarily, entirely voluntary. In fact, verse 46 says that they were meeting together in people's homes, so obviously some still owned homes. So this is not an issue where it's some sort of early form of communism. What it is, though, is that they're sharing life together and that they're caring for one another, that they're meeting one another's needs Now again, I want to be careful here. I'm not saying that it has to look exactly like this. But there are principles here that should be happening in this church. In the New Testament, we are commanded to care for one another. We are commanded to meet the needs of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. The New Testament assumes that we will be aware of of the needs of fellow believers in the body of Christ. And so I think it's worth asking, are we doing those things? Are we meeting the needs of other people in the church? I'm not just talking here about your closest friends, although I hope you're doing that. But I'm talking about are we meeting the needs of all in the body of Christ? In fact, that's the language of Acts 2, right? That they were distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And I guess that presupposes that we would know people well enough to be able to meet the needs of others. right? And in that, there's a challenge too. Are we reaching out to people we don't know? Are we seeking to cultivate relationships and ask intentional questions so that we can be a blessing to others? And then when we find out about those needs, are we putting our money where our mouth is? 
Are we actually meeting the needs of people in the church? A sign that we're actually living life together will be that we're aware of other people's needs. A sign that we're actually living like Christ is that we will then meet those needs when we become aware of them. So we want to be a church that is living life together, that is sharing life together to the point that we're caring for each other's needs and we're loving people because we love Jesus. And we want to model the love of Christ to those who are part of the body of Christ. So listen, the early church, they shared priorities, they shared time, they shared life, and most importantly, they shared a common faith. This is evidenced by the fact that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, which talks about Jesus, right? As we said, that was the focal point of the apostles' teaching, that Jesus was the Christ. The fact that they're commonly devoted to this tells us that they shared a common faith. It's also evidenced by what we read in verses 46 and 47. Verse 46 says this, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They were praising God together. This is what makes our fellowship different than that of the local street gang or the local country club. That we have a common love for Jesus Christ. And that we have a desire to worship and praise Him. And that love for Christ, listen, it should transcend all kinds of boundaries. It should transcend age boundaries. It should transcend ethnic and racial boundaries. It should transcend socioeconomic boundaries. This love for Christ should unite people from all different walks of life. Listen, if you find that at the church you only hang out with people that are just like you, if it's similar to the way you made friends in college when you were living in the dorm, that you just gravitate towards those who have common interests, I think you're missing something important about the fellowship of the body of believers. The body of believers, the, bo- the body of Christ, is meant to represent the fact that the love of Christ unites people across all kinds of boundaries. This is what the love of Christ does. It compels us to have different relationships. When I was in seminary, I had a friend of mine that I taught Sunday school class with, and he loved to point out to the class, he would always say, Ryan and I have nothing in common, and yet we are still good friends. Now, I always thought that was a little funny because I thought we did have some things in common, but I understood his point at large, right? Like, I understood what he was saying, and it was true. That although we may have come from different backgrounds, although we may have come from different life situations, although we may not have the same interests, we had a common love for Christ, and that is what drew us together. This is what the body of Christ is supposed to look like. We are supposed to be people who are united by one thing, a common love for Christ. And so what that means is that when we get this, we will have a church where on the weekends, rich people are hanging out with poor people. Where blue collar and white collar are mingling together. Where people who have different interests, some who are sports fans, some who are fans of the arts, some who are fans of other things, they spend time together and they still enjoy being around one another because they have a common love for Christ. Where race and background no longer become a separator. Where young people hang out with old and old with young and they like it. This is exactly what we're talking about. Listen, if we understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, and if we understand that there is nothing more important about us than our love for Christ, then that love for Christ will unite people from all different backgrounds. And we won't think to ourselves, let's just hang out with the people who look and act and think just like us, but let's hang out with our brothers and sisters in Christ, even if we think they're weird, right? And the fact is, I hate to say this, 
we have weird people here. I'm probably one of them, right? And in fact, you might be one of them too. That's the beauty of the body of Christ, is that we are unique. We all have our own quirks. We all do weird and different things, right? And if you don't think you're one of those people, ask your spouse. I'm sure they have some quirks they can mention about you, right? We all have our weird oddities, but the fact is that a love for Christ is what draws us together. Listen, if we have this type of fellowship, it will be beautiful to the world around us. If we have this common love for Christ, it will be different. Listen, if we're just hanging out with the same people who do the same things as us and look like us and talk like us, how is that any different than the people who are walking by on the street every day? But if we have relationships that transcend socioeconomic boundaries and transcend racial boundaries and transcend age boundaries, that says something to the world around us, does it not? It says that there is a supernatural work going on here. Because the type of fellowship that transcends those things, that's supernatural. And make no mistake, that's one of the points of this passage. The fellowship that's happening here is supernatural. It's the result of the Spirit's work. And on occasion, when that happens, it will produce spiritual, natural, or supernatural results. In fact, we see that in this passage. Verse 43. Verse 43 of Acts 2. It says this, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Verse 47, Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so you have these signs and wonders. You have the fact that people are being added to their number day by day. Now you might be tempted to look at this and think, okay, we just need to try harder to have more fellowship. But I don't think that's the response here. The response here is that God is the one doing the work. In verse 43, the signs and wonders are not being done by the apostles. They're being done through the apostles. In verse 47, it's the Lord who is adding to their number day by day. Now, was he using the fellowship of the believers? Absolutely. Was he using the teaching of the apostles? You better believe it. But unmistakably, this type of community is a work of God. It's the work of God. God is the one who's doing supernatural things here, not the church. God is the one who's doing things that can't be explained, not the church. Now, he's using the church, no doubt. And he's allowing the church to be a part of it. Praise God. But God is the one who's bringing about this type of community. And in that, I think there's a lesson for us. Listen, if we come to a passage like this, and we simply think to ourselves, let's just try harder to have fellowship. Let's be more intentional. We're kind of missing the point. This type of community only comes about through a work of the Spirit. It's only possible because God is working through a common love for Jesus Christ, and His Spirit is bringing about this type of unity. The focus in this passage is not on the believers and their fellowship. It's about how God works through people. It's about how the message of Christ unites. It's about how the Spirit does things that are unexplainable. That's the focus in this passage. So if you leave here thinking today, I just need to try harder to have more fellowship. I need to do more things to be in community. You're missing the point. Now listen, there may be some application for you. Absolutely. Right? There may be some practical things you can do. It may mean that you invite a new couple over for dinner this week. And it may mean that in conversations after the service, you actually talk about Jesus. I know that's weird to talk about Jesus in the church, but you could try it, right? You should go for it. You should talk about Christ in the fellowship time. Or it may mean that you prioritize your life differently so you can be a part of small groups and discipleship groups. Or it may mean that you reach out to someone that you normally wouldn't talk to. But those are not the first and primary responses. 
The primary response of a passage like this is that we recognize in humility we can't create this community on our own. And so we meditate on the great truths of the gospel and then we pray like crazy that God would create this community. That's the first response. Now, that's not to say we shouldn't do those other things. Invite people to your house. Have intentional conversations. Reach out to others. Do all of those things. But first and foremost, if you want this type of genuine fellowship and community, meditate on the fact that Jesus is the key. And, and then pray that God would do a great work in bringing about this type of community. Christ is the focus here. And along those lines, let me just offer a word of caution here. It's entirely possible that in your desire for fellowship, you could make the pursuit of fellowship idolatrous. In other words, you could desire fellowship more than you actually desire Jesus. We have to be careful here. We want to say that fellowship is good. That's actually kind of the point of the sermon, right? That fellowship is a good thing. But it's not the ultimate thing. Christ is ultimate. And fellowship is only helpful in so much that it causes us to worship Christ more. Listen, if you are looking for relationships with people to satisfy you, if you are looking for relationships with people to give you purpose in life, you have missed the point of all of the Bible. Christ alone is meant to satisfy. Christ alone will give purpose to your life. And so do not try to make people do something that only Christ can do. Don't think that fellowship is the key to you having joy in your relationship with Christ. Don't think that people are the key to you fighting off sin. Don't think that people are the way that you'll feel more joy or that people will, are what will help you to avoid loneliness. Only Christ can satisfy those longings. Now, might he use people? Might he use fellowship? Of course. That's the point of the sermon, right? That fellowship is helpful. It is good. It is God-given. But do not prioritize those things over Christ. Do not think to yourself, if only I had fellowship, then I would have joy. No. The only way you will have joy is if you are pursuing Christ. Period. Christ is what satisfies. Now, he'll use fellowship, and he'll use teaching, and he'll use a variety of things. But make sure that you do not elevate fellowship over Christ himself. Christ alone is what satisfies. Along those lines, I would offer up one other caution. As we've been saying, this type of fellowship and community can only come about through a work of God. It's only through God working in us. And so you cannot think to yourself, I'm just going to try harder to make this fellowship happen. We dare not have that type of pride. As Jamie Dunlop says in his book, The Compelling Community, he says this, I want to lower your ambition for what you can do to create community in your church. Scripture teaches the community that matters is community built by God. We may cultivate it, protect it, and use it, but we dare not pretend to create it. When in our hubris we set out to build community, we risk subverting God's plans for our churches, and I'm afraid this is something we do all the time. Listen, we must not think that we can simply create this type of community that's described here in Acts 2. It is a work of God. You cannot think to yourself, if we just create more programs or if we're just more intentional, or if we just chastise people if they don't have this fellowship, it's all going to come together. You cannot think that way because this type of community only comes about because of a work of God. And so the response to this is not let's pull up our bootstraps and try harder. The response to this is let's cry out and ask the Lord to give us mercy. 
Let's pray that He works in us in such a way that we desire all these things and that He, ta- he creates the type of community that is completely unexplainable to the world around us. That's the response to this passage. That we recognize we are deeply in need of Him. And so here's the response to Acts 2. We keep meditating on what Christ has done. We keep meditating on the fact that He died on the cross for our sins. And we keep praying that the Spirit would do something great in us. And if and when that happens, the result will be beautiful and it will be unexplainable. That's what we see happening here in Acts 2. Listen, when I was growing up in the church, I was pretty sure that fellowship consisted mostly of lemonade, cookies, and small talk. And there's nothing supernatural about that. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. It's okay if you like lemonade and cookies and small talk. That's fine. But it's not supernatural. That type of fellowship can be found at the local football stadium or at the local bar or bowling alley or nightclub. But genuine fellowship is much different. Biblical fellowship is based on a common set of shared priorities. It's based on the fact that we share life and time together and ultimately that we share a common love for Christ. Biblical fellowship is based on this love for Christ and driven by a supernatural work of the Spirit. The type of fellowship described here in Acts 2 is supernatural. It's a fellowship that defies boundaries. It's a fellowship that changes people's lives. It's a fellowship that makes non-believers wonder what is going on here. And so I have a sincere question for you today. Do you want this type of fellowship? Do you want it? Are you willing to do what it takes to have this type of fellowship? Are you willing to prioritize the things that you need to make this happen in your life? Maybe most importantly, are you willing to commit yourself to praying that God would bring about this type of fellowship in your life? Do you want this? I hope you do. I hope you do. Because I think if anything, Acts 2 would say, this type of fellowship is not only life-changing, it is life-giving. We need this type of fellowship if we are going to pursue Christ. And we need to pray that God would do it for us. And so let me finish just by praying that God would do that. God, we pray and ask that you would establish the type of community we see described here in Acts 2 in this church. We know it won't be easy. We know it'll be hard. We know that we'll need your help. In fact, more than just needing your help, we know that we'll need to fall on our knees and beg of you to establish this type of community. But we know it's possible. We see it here in Acts 2. God, I pray that you would raise up a group of people in this church who want this type of community and are willing to do what it takes to make this type of community happen and ultimately that they would have the humility to recognize that it only comes from you. God, we need you. We need you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.